You are listening to the Kensington Church Podcast, recorded live in Michigan. To learn more about Kensington, visit kensingtonchurch.org. Everybody hurts sometimes, I know that's what they say. But right now it seems this loneliness won't go away, yeah. Can anybody feel this heartache? Is anyone around? Feels like we're running around in circles, we can't catch a breath. We can't enjoy the moment when we always want what's next, yeah. Just when I can't take no more. It's when I hear him say, don't hang your head when you get lonely. It seems like most of the year, it's like so far off. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, boom, it's here. And so at this point, I'm expecting that for all of us, our holiday shopping is done. Preparations are in full swing. I mean, at this point, Christmas is only a couple days away. So your stockings are probably hung. Cookies have been baked. And in your house, if it's like mine, plenty of them have already been eaten as well. Gifts have been bought. Maybe they've been wrapped, or maybe you're more like me, and you're going to wait till the night before Christmas, and you're going to wrap your gifts. But the surest sign... The Christmas time is here. There's the lights that are everywhere. Christmas lights on trees, Christmas lights in houses, on storefronts, on roofs. And these lights, they don't just spark all the Christmas feels for us. They also speak to us. And they speak to us about the light that once entered humanity 2,000 years ago. The light of the world, whose name is Jesus. And he is, according to the Bible, the light that shines in the darkness. And the darkness cannot overcome his light. His light is the light that illuminates who God is to all of creation. And his light is the light that gives us the ability to see with a sight that's far beyond our eyes. It's his light that's come into the world for you, for me, and for all of us. 
and it's his light that changes everything. And we are gonna celebrate the light of Jesus this Christmas at Kensington, and specifically how the light of Jesus gives us an ability to see. Our campuses are working hard, and we are in full preparation and full excitement for the services. The lobbies have been decorated, and we cannot wait to enjoy the holiday with you. So I really hope you'll join us at one of our services, and I also hope that you'll invite somebody to come with you too, because there's somebody that you care about that needs to know that the light of Jesus came for them. And it's going to be the power of your invitation that's going to help start the beginning of their own journey with Jesus. The light and the giver of sight. So come experience the beauty and the wonder and the light that is Jesus this Christmas with us. Good morning, everyone. How you doing? Man, it's so, okay, I hear you. It's so exciting uh, and great to see you all sitting here in the service. And those of you watching online, thanks so much for tuning in today. My name is Aaron. I'm the Worship Arts Director here at the Clinton Township Campus. And just like Craig said, we're super excited about Christmas. Our team has been working really hard to prepare a great service for you to come and experience how God is bringing light into your world. And so we want to invite you back. We have five services here at this campus that we've been working really hard on. And so we actually have these cards that you may have received um, in the past weeks, but we're going to be handing these out at the end of service. And the point of these is to be thinking of a person that you can invite to Christmas. We don't want you to just come back yourself, but think of someone that might be willing to come and hear a message and enjoy the service and really see how God is bringing light into their world. So we want to encourage you to do that. We'll be handing these out at the end of service, but we also have tickets for our Christmas service. And tickets don't cost anything. They're absolutely free. But the reason that we do this is because we want to make sure that there's enough space for you. It would suck if you all came to the same service and we didn't have enough room in here and we had to turn people away. And so we really want to make sure that we prepare properly for you. So go ahead, go to the website, download the free tickets for you and your friends, and we hope to see you back later this week. Now, on the 26th, uh, the Sunday directly after Christmas, there will be no in-person services at any of the campuses. We've prepared a service on the theme of New Year, New Hope, where one of our pastors, Jeremiah Roy, is going to be bringing the message. And you'll see some very familiar faces also leading the music team as well. So we encourage you, keep your PJs on, turn on the TV, and you can stream on any platform, whether it's YouTube or Facebook, whichever one you prefer. And we hope to see you engaging with us on social media as we do that together virtually. Now, if you have any questions and you're thinking going into the new year, hey, there might be some things that I want to jump in. Maybe you want to volunteer. Maybe there's some groups that you're looking for to make this large place feel a little bit more like home. We want to meet you out in the lobby. There's an area called the hub where people will be wearing orange shirts and name tags, just waiting to meet you and say hello and plug you into any area that you might be interested in. There's so many groups. We have so many great things that are going to be being offered in the winter season. And so we hope that you would come out there and meet us. This is your first time here. We want to say thank you so much for being here. We're so excited anytime that we see new faces. And believe it or not, there's new people every single week. And it's so exciting that we get to celebrate Jesus with you. And so we want you to come out and meet us at the Hub as well. We have a special gift for you just to say thank you so much for being here as well. Now, we're in our fourth week of the Advent series, and we've been looking each week at a certain thing that we know that Jesus brings to our world. In the first week, we talked about how Jesus brings hope. 
The second week, we talked about how Jesus brings peace in the midst of chaos. And last week, we talked about how Jesus brings joy in every situation. And this week, we're going to be stepping into the love that Jesus brings to our world. And we really want to see what that love has to do with us. And so I'm really looking forward to what Craig is going to say on that. But before we dive any deeper, I want to invite you all to stand and say hello to the people around you. so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him John 3 6, 16 through 17 
When I was growing up, I loved Christmas. What kid doesn't love Christmas? I love Christmas carols, but I also should tell you I grew up in Frankenmuth. You have to love Christmas if you grew up in Frankenmuth. If you've not been there, you don't know what I'm talking about. I think it's actually a requirement to move into the city. They give you a questionnaire. You have to answer questions about carols and stuff. But I just love Christmas. And that song, Silent Night, Holy Night, was always my favorite. But I will say over the years, um, as I've lived more, I think the song is not exactly accurate because I do believe it was a holy night. But the story tells me it wasn't very silent. First of all, you got some shepherds out minding their own business in the field, quiet, the sheep are all asleep, angels break through, start singing, start shouting, there's a bright light, the sheep all wake up, they start going crazy. I'm sure, it's not in the Bible, but that's how I see it anyhow. And then you go to Bethlehem and you have a woman giving birth, and I've had three children and I was in the room, not doing anything except being in the way, but it wasn't quiet or silent at all, it's pretty noisy. And then there were animals there because it was a stable, and I think it woke up the animals, and I think they weren't quiet either. So you've got to think about Silent Night a little differently, perhaps. But it was a holy night. You know, I think um, the more we live with the Christmas story, it's very simple uh, to lose the awe and wonder of it. So my prayer today is that we can maybe look at it and hear it with some fresh ears, because my conviction is that it is the most important, without question, event in all of history that occurred that night. And I'll tell you more about that in just a moment, but if you think about it, this is God coming into the world to tell us who he is and to tell us how he thinks and feels about us on Christmas. And so we're going to go there today, but I want to start with um, one of Jesus' closest followers, one of the disciples by the name of John, had this to say, and I think this is his take on Christmas. What was going on Christmas 2,000 years ago, that first night in Bethlehem? John writes, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, now catch this, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. That's what Christmas is. Christmas is Jesus making God known to us. No one saw God until Christmas. The story of Christmas is supposed to remove all ambiguity about who God is, all uncertainty about what God is like, or it should be. And the most important thing is he should make it clear that God at his very essence is what this last candle, which the Hammer family just lit a few moments ago, he's love. So with a megaphone, Christmas is shouting that God is love. And in fact, the verse that was read, the two verses from John, same guy, a couple chapters later said that God loved the world, which is us. So let me just paraphrase to say to each of you, the story of Christmas is this, that God loved you so much that he gave. And what did he give? He gave himself. And so we're going to press into this fourth candle today. We've talked about, as Aaron said, we've talked about hope and then peace and then last week joy and today love. And then if you come back Christmas Eve, we'll light the last candle where we celebrate the light that came into our world to bring light into our lives. But um, before we continue with that, we're going to take a few moments to receive our offering. And the offering is really about generosity because God is generous with us. And the only way that God's work gets done on earth is we come together in friendship and in belief and in partnership to invest in the work of God. That's what we do here at Kensington. And so we thank all of you that are partners with us and 
Uh, if you're new to us, you don't have to worry about this moment, but if you're with us, you probably know everything that's up on the screen already because we say it every week, but there's easy ways to give. You can leave a check on your way out today or you can give online or through the app or also you can text that number. And on behalf of our whole community, we just thank you for your generosity and your support of our work. So, so we're going to press into this idea of love. And really, I want to start with a question, um, a very important question. I think the most important question any human being ever wrestles with, no matter how they conclude it, the question is, who is God? And by that, I mean, what is he like? What is his nature? What is the nature of God? And it's, it's a question that we grapple with and we wrestle with and we change. And over the years, it tends to morph and shift a little bit. But what is he really like? And I want to start by talking about the idea of our faces because we're going to talk about the face of God. Um, our faces are very important. It looks like most of you are taking care of your face pretty well. You did this morning. I can't see you in the back. Maybe that's why you're in the back. But um, faces tell us so much, don't they? Like, don't faces communicate an amazing amount of information, whether we like it or not? You've, you've probably heard the old joke. Someone says, how are you doing? I go, I'm fine. Are you happy? Yeah, I'm happy. But would you mind telling your face, right? Because the faces typically don't lie. We can put on a face for a little bit, but typically our faces tell the story. Uh, Sonia, who is our, um, our campus director here, knows me really well. And she's such a strong feeler that if, when I see her on a Sunday morning, I come in and she goes, how are you doing? I go, great. She goes, no, you're not. You're lying to me. Why? Because your face is telling me. I can tell. Something's wrong. Tell me what's wrong. And she won't relent until I actually tell her what's wrong. Our faces communicate an awful lot. A lot of information comes from the face, the human face. In fact, we're going to do a little experiment here. I'm going to show you a sequence, I think, of six faces, the same woman up on the screen. You're going to get to see it for about two seconds. And if you want to participate and there's no wrong answer, well, that's actually not true. There are wrong answers. But if you want to shout out, what is the emotion that you see in this face? Okay, everybody got it? Two seconds, six faces in a row. Just think it at least, but if you want to shout it out, shout it out. Okay, ready? Let's go. I heard eh. That's not a word. <laughs> Is that afraid or angry? Okay. I didn't hear a lot of consistency there, but if you had more time with them, you know, you might know, and especially if you knew the person, if they were someone that you knew, you might have a, a better chance of getting what that person was experiencing. But faces tell a lot. You know, my dad's face, and I love my dad. He passed away 11 years ago. He brought a lot of joy and happiness into my life, but he's a pretty stern person. And the main thing his face could communicate without saying a word was disappointment. And I have to confess, I gave him a lot of reasons to be disappointed. Sometimes maybe they weren't good reasons, though. I remember I wasn't the brightest student, and unfortunately, I was one of six kids where they were all bright, pretty much, and I was the not bright one, and so report cards used to, used to bring them home. I don't know if they still do that. Uh, I should have learned a long time ago, by the way, I wasn't very smart, as I said, to actually lose it on the way home or have the dog eat it or something. But So dinner table, um, report card day, we'd sit around the table, and my dad would sit at the head of the table, and somewhere there was all the report cards were passed to him, and he would look at them. And when it, when it came to mine, you just look up at me and the face told the story. Like all these all A's, literally my brother got all A's all the way through school, college, grad school, my sister, same thing. And I'm like half of an A or less. So he would read the card. He didn't have to say anything. He'd just look up. Just give me that look, right? When I was 16 and drove in snow for the first time and smashed the car, Buick Electra 225, it's like a boat. 
destroyed the little, uh, I forget what it was. But when I had to face him for the first time, he didn't say anything. He just looked at me. Disappointment. We were a sports family. We played tennis. I had three brothers, so we had doubles all the time. I didn't want to get stuck with my dad because I'm going to make mistakes. And when I made a mistake, you know, double fault or, you know, just hit the ball out, just you didn't have to say anything. It was that look. See, faces communicate so much. What about the face of God? In fact, I want to do a little thought experiment here. You don't have to do this, but if you don't mind, close your eyes. And I want you to take 10 seconds of silence and have God's face come to, to mind. Don't try to get a right one. Just what comes to mind when you think about God? Now, here's what I know to be true. First of all, whatever any of us pictured has probably been influenced by our story, our own story through life. Like for many years, it was my dad's face that I would see, or a version of that. I mostly saw disappointed because I also knew I gave God lots of reasons to be disappointed with me every single day. So when I would picture or imagine God, that's what he would look like. And everybody has in their mind a picture of God. Even if you're an atheist, I would say you have a picture of the God you don't believe in what he looks like. And maybe for you, he's disinterested or maybe worse, he's petty or he's cruel, unloving, uncaring, judgmental, angry. And all of us who are believers, we have some of those same ideas when God comes to mind. We have an image or a picture of what God is like. And the Bible, as I said, talks about the face of God. And I'm just going to give you one example. This is in Exodus 33, Moses, who was a man who led Israel out of Egypt into, you know, moving toward the land that God had promised to them. Um, was very close to God. And Exodus 33.11 says that the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one who speaks to a friend. Like try to imagine that. Friendship. And like face to face with God. And yet, a few verses later in the same chapter, we, they're now talking to each other. And this is what the conversation goes like. Then Moses said to God, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence but you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Well, yeah, I, I thought they were just face-to-face talking. So what, in the same chapter, what's going on here? And what this should tell us is that two things. First of all, um, whenever we talk about God, we are going to use metaphor and symbols. Because God is so other than us, he's not physical. And so physical um, attributes are used to describe him, but they're not literal. For example... The uh, armor of the Lord is used in Isaiah, and the finger of God is used in Daniel. But he doesn't literally have an arm or a finger. So these are all symbols to try to help us understand something that's not physical. So what is the face of God? The idea there, though, that's come out of that is that God, if you can't look at his face, then he's not actually very friendly. He's so distant and other than us that we cannot be face-to-face with God. Clearly, there is a mystery that's here. But as I said, God does have a face. It's the one that we create in our own minds. And that governs so much of how we think about life and about faith and about God and about Christianity. And we read the Bible and we see God, you know, it's interesting. How many of you have watched The Chosen? All right, so I watched The Chosen and now when I read the Gospels and I'm reading the uh, words of Jesus, I hear that guy's voice, that actor's voice. Because I like it. I like that portrayal, that image, that voice, that demeanor of God. But we all have something that's there. And what I'm trying to do today in the little bit of time that we have together is to look at this idea of love and look at the Christmas story and see if we can't reimagine what was going on in Bethlehem that defined who God was in a way that would be unmistakable. 
Because we could just despair and say, in our minds, we can never know God for sure. We read these, these verses in Exodus. It all seems too confusing. So we can't really know God, but I would say that is true until Christmas. We couldn't really know what God is like. We couldn't really, quote, see the face of God until Christmas. And Christmas, as an event, was God revealing without any ambiguity who God was. He literally took on a face in the person of Jesus. That's when God had a face that we could actually look, eyes we could look into. Christmas, the incarnation of Jesus, is when God took on a face. And so Jesus is what God looks like. Jesus is what God has to say about us. Jesus is how God feels about us, period. No more explanation needed. All ambiguity should be gone. All uncertainty should be gone. Jesus made this clear when he had a conversation with Philip. This is in before the cross, before his death and resurrection. He's talking to his disciples. And Philip says this in John 14. He said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I'm not saying this. Jesus is saying this. Jesus has said this. We read the Bible. We read the Old Testament especially. There can be some uncertainty about that. But Jesus declared in no uncertain terms to his disciples and now to us 2,000 years later, if you want to know what God is like, you don't need to look anywhere else. You don't need to read a theology book. You don't need to go to seminary. You don't even need to hear a sermon. If you want to know what God is like, look at me. That's who God is. Full disclosure, Jesus is the best theological discourse, uh, work, volumes, whatever, ever written about who God is. In the person of Jesus, that's who God is. Christmas is God's face. Christmas is God revealing himself to us so that we can't mistake it, except we do. We do, I do. Even saying these words, I know how often in my mind I distort who I think God is, as God is with me and watching my life and I'm trying to interact with him. All kinds of images still are conjured up in my mind. And so we look to Christmas because Christmas is the megaphone in which God speaks loudly to us about what he is like. The writer of Hebrews actually got this so well. Again, removing all doubt, this is what he said. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. That's the Old Testament. But in these days, he has spoken to us by his son. And here's how he's defined. See if you believe this. Talking about Jesus now. Whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also he made the universe. Who's he talking about here? Jesus. So when you read Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's the pre-incarnate Jesus existing in the mystery of the Trinity. Involved in creation. Jesus is not a new idea about God. Jesus is the original idea about God. Now among us, incarnated in the person of Jesus Christ, revealing to us fully who he is and what he's like. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact, not like close or almost there, the exact representation of God's being, sustaining all things by his powerful word, even right now in this moment. That's Jesus. And he came to Bethlehem as a baby and he grew up and went to the cross to tell us God telling us, this is who I am. All of their ideas are false ideas. 
All other ideas about God are of the human imagination, human invention. Religion has invented ideas about God. The Christian religion has added on to the story and added all kinds of images about God that don't square up with Jesus. Jesus is the final statement about who God is. Paul actually wrote this in, uh, about the face of God in his letter to the Corinthians. He said, For God who said, Let shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory, displayed where? In the face of Christ. So if we could just see Jesus, it would answer all questions about what God is like, how he feels about what's going on, how he feels about us, and what he's up to. And so what is he like? If we could see the face of Jesus here right now, instead of my face, if we could see his face, what would we see? And it's summed up in one word, love. Love. That's who God is. God is love. In fact, John, in his first letter, in the fourth chapter, twice says God is love. You can memorize that and take that to the bank and you can say, I could talk about his immutability and his infallibility and his omnipotence and his omnipresence and I could pull out all these big words about God, all which are true, but the essence of who he is is love. So when you think back to the picture you pulled up in your mind, did you see love? If you didn't see love, you saw a distorted image of who God is. The face of Jesus was meant to reveal to us who God is. There's actually a, um, a picture that my grandmother had hanging up in her house growing up of Jesus. Maybe you've seen this one before. Scared me to death. <laughs> Let's leave that up there for a minute or two, okay? Or a sec uh, at least a half a minute. Uh, his eyes followed me wherever I went. He was mad or about to be mad, definitely stern, not really that interested in me or connected unless I did something wrong. I mean, as a six-year-old and eight-year-old, we went to visit grandma in Detroit. It, I just, this, I, did, I wanted to turn the picture and face the wall. Now, if you have this in your house, I apologize to you. <laughs> Hopefully it means something different for you. But for me, this was like not something very invited. It was, I don't know how to describe it. It just didn't move my heart in a good way. So fast forward to my late teens and early 20s. We moved from Frankenwood down to the Detroit area. And you got to remember what was going on in the world at the time. This will date me. Vietnam War was going on. The hippies were upset. They were going to Woodstock and creating all kinds of carnage. I was in my little Baptist church, but I, 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 didn't, I wanted to be cool, so I became a Jesus freak. Do you remember that term? Like, I, I'm glad there's no pictures. I'm glad people didn't have cell phones back then to take pictures because my hair was down to here. I wore a cross around my neck, and I was at the corner of Walton and uh, Rochester Road telling people about Jesus, right? But let me show you our picture of Jesus. This is from our era. Like, what about that? What if Jesus actually looked like that? What if Jesus right now could stand in this room and look at each of you, knowing everything in your soul, everything you've done, everything you've thought, all your mistakes that you wish you hadn't done, all the stuff you're in right now, and when, he when he looked at you, that's still what you saw. And then he'd open his arms and say, come. Yeah, we can work on that. I love you. Like, what if that was God? Christmas says, that's God. For God so loved the world that he gave Jesus to us, himself, God incarnate, to forgive us and to love us and to give us eternal life. And then verse 17, which I, we memorized John 3.16 when I was a kid. 17, we didn't memorize. For he did not come into the world to condemn the world. How much religion is condemning or feels condemning? So much of it. So much of it for me growing up. He did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved, rescued, brought into God's loving care through Jesus. 
God is love, period. That's who he is. He is love. And so, if God is love, if the Christmas story is true, and I don't say that because I don't believe it is true, but I don't think I live like it's true very often. Jesus is what God looks like. Jesus is what God thinks about you. Jesus is what God feels about you. And because God is love, that means that love is how we are to think about God. Love is how we are to talk about God. Love is how we are to feel about God. And love is how we are to believe about God. It's Jesus, it's love, almost synonymous words. Because he's the essence of God. This is what the Christmas story is about. A God who loves that deeply. So if, if somehow we could just see the face of God in that way, in our imaginations, in our thoughts, in our daily walk as we go through life, as we do good and bad, and we have joys and we have sorrows, if all of that we could see this, if we could see that face of Jesus, it would be transforming. And so I want to give two exhortations for you. The first, each of them have only two words. I hope you can remember them. Two things to do in response to this. Like, what does all this mean then? So what, Craig? Here's the first thing. Can we live loved? John said that we love because he first loved us. It's important to get the order right. We love, but only because he first loved us. At the essence of your being as a person of faith, if you're here as a person of faith, you're online, you're, you, you consider yourself a person of faith, believing in God, believing in Jesus, the fundamental thing that you have to get right and you have to believe deeply and embrace and experience every day and every waking moment, if you can, is how deeply you are loved, no matter what. What does Jesus' face look like? Well, if I could give you an exhortation also for 2022, would you consider taking the whole year and just keep reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the first four books of the New Testament? These are called the Gospels, the good news stories. See, they're called good news stories because this is really good news. Because there Jesus gets revealed. You see his face as he faces people. You get a sense of what his face might look like. So let me give, as an example, John 8. They bring a woman to Jesus caught in adultery. Can you see Jesus looking at her in the angry crowd that wants her stoned because that's what the law said, which is in the Old Testament, by the way. So Jesus could have pulled a passage from the Old Testament and said, go ahead. But instead he says, okay, if you're without sin, throw the first stone. And one by one they drop their stones and they leave. And the courtyard is empty now except for Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. Not her best day, right? What is Jesus? So picture him looking at her. Now here's the face of God before this woman. And he says, where are those who condemn you? And she said, they're all gone. And then he says to her, neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Not because it's wrong, because it's messing you up. And I love you. Do you see his face there? That's John 8. How about John 9? Jesus is on his way with his disciples, going somewhere. An interruption comes. There's a man who's blind, crying out to be healed. Jesus stops, has a conversation with him, with his disciples, and he touches him and he, he brings healing to his body. What does God's face look like? John 9. Or, since we have a decent crowd here, how about Matthew 14? Jesus has been teaching probably for eight hours. By the way, anybody willing to stay here? I got the next eight hours free. <laughs> yeah, no way. <laughs> You'll be the first to go. But you know, if, if, if I was interesting enough to listen to and you were willing to stay for eight hours, a couple things would happen. I won't talk about the one that you'd have to leave for. But you get hungry. So picture Jesus 
doing his work as a teacher, and they've been there a long time, and he becomes mindful that they're hungry. He cares about that. That's the face of God. He's looking at 5,000 plus, that's just men, women and children in one case, so maybe 10, 15,000 people there. And he cares about that. So he says, what kind of food do we have? And they bring a little bit, and it's not enough. And he says, don't worry, I'll take care of it. And he multiplies it. Why did he do that? Because even their physical hunger mattered to him. So the needs you have right now in your life, in your work, your finance, your all of that, your health, all of that. Who is God? Read it in the Gospels. It's revealed so clearly. In fact, this is really critical. The only thing where Jesus didn't have a happy face was when he was face-to-face with the religious leaders. And he had harsh words for them. He even called them snakes and vipers one time. That's the way to get yourself killed, by the way. Why did he do that to them? Because they were guilty of distorting who God was. They had created a religion that actually kept people from God. So if we believe this story, this is God actually here among his creation, among his people that he loves so much. You understand why he's upset with them? No, you're doing it wrong. You got it all wrong. You're saying it wrong. You're portraying me in a way that is not who I am. You're pushing people actually away from me. They're living in fear and depression and guilt and doubt and shame. This is not who I am. So when you read the stories where he's confronting the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law and he's angry, this is why he's angry. It's the only thing he got angry about. He never got angry with a sinful person, a broken person, a needy person. He only had love and empathy and care and concern for them. But then when people came along and said, this is who God is like and you need to do this and that and you got to follow all the law and he was le- they were legalistic, Jesus came against that with everything in them because they were actually leading people away from God. Anything in your life that is leading you down that path, you need to turn and run as far away as you can. Anything but the face of Jesus, who is God, who is love, is not who God is. Anything against that is not God. And Christmas came to settle once and for all. As I said, it's the megaphone shouting out loudly, this is the true nature of God. This is who he is. And so live loved. I want to just put up on the screen a quote, one of my favorite authors who passed away over a decade ago, Henry Nouwen. He was brilliant. He was a professor. He loved Jesus. He wrote many books. This is what he said near the end of his life. He said, for most of my life, I have struggled to find God, to know God, to love God. I have tried hard to follow the guidelines of the spiritual life, to pray always, to work for others, read the scriptures, and to avoid the many temptations to dissipate myself. I have failed many times, but always tried again, even when I was close to despair. It's a treadmill of religion. And then he says this, now I wonder whether I have sufficiently realized that during all this time, God has been trying to find me, to know me, to love me. The question is not, how am I to find God, but how am I to let myself be found by him? The question is not, how am I to love God, but how am I to let myself be loved by God? Isn't that powerful? Because, see, we love because he first loved us. So we have to live loved, to live every day in the knowledge and wonder and experience and beauty of being loved by God exactly as we are. And then the second thing, so those are the first two words, live loved. Here's the last two, and we're going to finish with this. To live loving. Now, really, I mean loving others, but I wanted to get it down to two words. So live loved and result of that, to live loving. In other words, that love of God that comes in us now has to spill out. And it's really the incarnation happening over and over again. 
The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Galatia. He said, I am in labor among you until Christ is formed in you. So having received Jesus, this beautiful expression of God's love into our lives, he now says, now let that grow and flow out of you. And so that, that's to live loving. I, I like to say it's to live incarnationally. Incarnationally means that we do exactly what God did in Jesus. God moved into our neighborhood as one of us and spread love and care and empathy and compassion and generosity everywhere he went. That's what he did. So now we incarnate in our own world. We're already here, but we incarnate that reality, that value, that love where we live, in our neighborhoods, in our world, whether it's around the corner or it's on the other side of the planet. And that's one of the things that we value so much at Kensington is this incarnational living. And it's not of duty or responsibility. It's not religion. It's not obligation. It's not to win God's favor. We have God's favor. We do it because we want to do it, because we are called to follow in the steps of Jesus. And so I want to... Um, share with you a story, just one story from our congregation of someone who really got this. I think this, I don't know him, I don't know this man very well at all, but I know that when I look at his life, he must live loved. He must know how deeply he's loved by God. And then as a result of that, he is living, loving others. So watch this. You can have the best heart in the world and you can be trying to do your best and to help people, but if you're not bringing along the people you're trying to help in the process, then you're really just doing things to people. Um, and that's, you know, I didn't, didn't move here to do things to people. I grew up in Arkansas, graduated high school, went to Bible college not far uh, from where I grew up. And while we were there, Started getting plugged into a, a little neighborhood not far from where we were going to school. We found a vacant lot. We started kicking a ball around, and here comes a kid, and here comes another kid, and here comes another kid. Eventually, we've got like 10 kids that we're playing soccer with, and we said, that was pretty cool. Like, we'll just come back next week, and we'll do it again. And as we were coming up on graduation, we said, let's just move somewhere and do this for real. Let's buy a house, move into a neighborhood uh, that needs good neighbors, and uh, just see if being a good neighbor can change a community. We started looking at the map and trying to figure out where we wanted to go. Ultimately, I'm not a very patient person, and I got tired of talking. Uh, and so I just told my group of friends, I said, I'm just going to sell what doesn't fit into my car. I'm going to drive to Detroit. I'm going to go figure it out. And they all said, great, you first. Uh, and so I got here, and... I uh, got plugged in at Kensington. I was an intern there for a while. Got pulled into a number of different directions, and one of those places was Pontiac, and uh, we found this house and bought it, moved in, and called my friends and said, I bought a house in Pontiac, Michigan. Let's do it. You can look at a census and decide what a neighborhood needs. You can look at maps and data and whatever and decide what a neighborhood needs, but uh, until we heard it from the community, until we heard it from people in the neighborhood that that was actually something they wanted or that was a space that uh, they actually cared about, then we weren't, we weren't going to jump in and try and force anything. The needs in this neighborhood are legion. You know, there's so many things. It's schools, it's transportation, it's jobs, it's crime. But we can't do all of those things. We don't have the resources to do everything that needs to happen. And so we're just going to let the neighborhood decide what percolates to the top in terms of the greatest need and the things that people around here care about the most. We heard over and over again from people in this neighborhood of food. Food was an issue. Food was food access was incredibly frustrating, largely because of food and, and health issues. You know, life expectancy in this neighborhood is 64 years. And that was a pretty big space that we, we thought we could work in. And there's all this vacant land. There are vacant lots all over the neighborhood where there used to be a house that 
burned down or got demolished for whatever reason. And so we went to the county, you know, how much is a vacant lot? And they said, well, we don't really sell a whole lot of vacant lots. How about $10? And I said, I think I have $80. And so we bought eight vacant lots around the neighborhood. And when we were talking to neighbors about a garden, uh, we had neighbors who jumped in and said, oh, I know how to go grow green beans and cucumbers and collards and kale. The people here already knew how to grow stuff. Uh, they just needed the here to there, which was a little bit of resources to build a space to grow. And that first year we grew 500 pounds of food. The next year we grew 1,200. We would pick and then like make up bags and go and hang them on doors in apartment buildings around the neighborhood. And so a lot of times like we were feeding people before we ever actually met them, which was pretty cool. We've been growing now for eight years, and we're growing on about an acre and a quarter. So we're the largest by size and the oldest uh, food growing operation in the city of Pontiac. So we have the gardens, and as we've been adding and growing the gardens over the years, we've needed more and more help. At some point, we, we realized if we wanted to keep growing food, if we wanted to keep providing more and more food for more and more people in the community and in the city, uh, we needed to add space and we added, needed to add help. And so uh, I reached out to Becky and, and said, hey, you know, if, if there's ever anybody at Kensington who's looking for volunteer opportunities, we'd love to have them in the garden. There's tons of different ways volunteers can plug in. It's uh, helping with the community gardens, neighborhood cleanups, uh, tutoring the kids in their, in their after-school programs. There's a lot of community events that Micah 6 does where they bring in resources uh, for the neighborhood, and so those you can come alongside those events. Kensington created the Move Out Network about three years ago, and it's a place where people can visit on the website, and they can look at all the different teams out in the community that are loving their neighbors and volunteering, and you can join um, teams through the Move Out Network. We started having conversations with our neighbors about what do you want to see in this building? Did a big community survey, asked people what they wanted to see. If we were turning turn this building into a community center, 72% of people said uh, the kids need a place to play basketball in the winter. But there's no gyms in this neighborhood that you can walk to. Mostly what folks focused on was four things, uh, which was health and wellness stuff, uh, youth activities, entrepreneurship, and uh, arts and culture activities. The gym is, uh, I, I think, l literally, but also metaphorically, like the heart of that building. It is, it's right in the center, it's in the middle of everything, and we have so many organizations who, when they walk in and they see that gym, they go, yes, it's got a stage. It's got these beautiful vaulted ceilings. That's where you used to have roller skating nights, that's where you used to have your movie nights, that's where we'll have community meetings, that's where we'll have our small farm market. That gym is uh, definitely the coolest, coolest spot in the building. I think it'll be the most utilized space in the building. There should be something going on in there all the time. I think Coleman and his team uh, have really built trust. And so when he is casting vision for this community center, there are people that want to come alongside because they see the fruit. There's more community, there's less crime, there's more people staying in their housing for longer periods of time. Uh, just so many beautiful examples of what has happened as a result of them being in the community. Today, we have 100% of our space committed with six organizations on a waiting list. And that includes, you know, 
Olsa's gonna put seven Head Start classrooms in, they're gonna put a WIC office in, uh, the Art Experience is coming in, Accent Pontiac's coming in, PAL's coming in, Sprout is gonna move over and become a full grocery store, which will take this neighborhood completely off of the food desert list, which is pretty cool. Uh, and Kaleo Kids is gonna come in and do uh, dance and music with their kids there. My favorite thing to do is get all of our tenants together uh, because they're already creating plans together where, you know, what if Saturday just looks like a kid comes in, they go to an art class and they go to their music class and they go to dance class, then they come and play basketball, then they eat lunch and then they go do this and like then they leave for the day and it's like a whole built out Saturday program. Like that our tenants are already talking about ways to work together to make life better for kids in this neighborhood. The name comes from Micah 6-8, you know, the, the Jewish people, they're having a conversation with God and saying, God, we're doing all the stuff that you asked us to do. We're doing the sacrifices. We're going to temple, uh, but we don't really seem to be getting any blessings. And God said, I didn't really want any of that. I just, I wanted you to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with me. In terms of three ideas that were going to be guiding, guiding principles for us, I mean, justice, that a lot of the things that we're working on are are issues of justice. It's not fair that because you live here, you're going to die 20 years earlier than people in surrounding communities. It's not fair that because you live here, the expectation is that you're housing a substandard. Uh, it's not fair that just because you live here, you know, the quality of education for you and the opportunities that your kids are going to have is going to be different. We needed a lot of mercy that we were six college-educated white kids moving into this neighborhood and uh, trying to help and that even, even though that's what we were after and that was the heart, we knew we were still going to run into things and say stupid things and do things we thought were good ideas that weren't great ideas. And, uh, and so we needed a lot of mercy from our neighbors as we sort of figured those things out together. Uh, and then the humility was also that, that we need to be listening. We need to know when a, an idea is not working and give it up. We need to know uh, that we need to always kind of have our ear to the community and sort of let the neighborhood guide the things that we do that way. Anytime we have a group of volunteers uh, here, I always tell them, you know, we have a long list of things to do today, but uh, I didn't move here for long lists. I moved here for my neighbors. Uh, and so some kids are going to run up and they're going to want to play and a neighbor's going to walk up and ask you where you're from and why you're here and what you're doing and uh, want to know more about you. And so any if that happens, like, Put down your tools, put down whatever you're using, and hang out. Get to know my neighbors, get to talk to the people in this community, because, like, that's way more important than anything we're going to get done in the garden today. They check in on us. They're always worried about us. The number of people from this neighborhood who showed up at my house with presents when I had a kid, I'll be here forever. And, and you know, it's a great place to have a family. It's a great place to work. It's a great place to raise a kid. Um, we're loving it, having a great time. To do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. This is an amazing vision. And this is just one of the Kensington Move Out teams that is connecting to people following Jesus Christ to meet needs all over our community, all over our region. I'm speaking to so many of you that are on these teams, but we're seeing more of these teams develop all the time. And when you make a year-end Christmas gift to Kensington, you're making a gift to people that are bringing hope out of despair and where you're bringing light into places where people are just discouraged and have given up the dreams of their life. 
and we get to be dream restorers with Jesus Christ in these communities. And I really believe that one of the greatest parts of what Kensington is now doing is seeing move out teams starting all the time that are being birthed out of the burdens of your heart. And as you see people, as you realize there are needs that God has enabled you along with others to meet, we get to step into those places. What a joy to invest together in what Jesus Christ is doing. I mean, didn't that story just blow you away? Some guy named Coleman Yoakum from Arkansas comes up and does this? How in the world does something like that happen? It's the light of love. It's God has a face and the face is Jesus, the one who gave. And once we receive, he says, now it's your turn, now give. And most of us are not going to have a story like that. I mean, I, they're never going to put me up on a video or probably us on a video, although maybe. Have big dreams, listen to God. But the reality is that God is at work since Jesus' incarnation, his death, his resurrection. He's at work in our world, in our communities, to change the world. And the reason why, by the way, we've been handing this to you the last couple of weeks, and some of you got it at home. I even got one in New York City mailed to me. And I've been reading through this thing. And the reason we do it, this is not a sales pitch, and this is not trying to get your money. This is saying, can you believe what God has given us the opportunity to do? This thing is, is freaking amazing. I don't know how else to say it. I've read through it so many times and just in wonder how God is using our church, not only in our community, but around the world. And by the way, um, the Move Out Network that's only three years old, if you go online and look at what we're doing in our community through Move Out, it's absolutely extraordinary. And I hope some of you in 2022 will make the decision to step in to support it, not just with your finances, but also with your life, with your hands, with your feet, with your arms, with your smiles, with your face, with your love to change our community. But I have to tell you, as I've gone through this, the thing, I, I keep stopping at one page. It's the hospital in India. And I'll tell you why. So in the year 2000, my first year on staff at Kensington, uh, I got a chance to go to India with Steve Andrews, and we took our daughters with us. And I didn't know what to expect. It was a long ways away. It took a long way to get there. And about day two, we were walking down this dirt road, and there was a man that was laying in what looked like a cot in front of his little thatched roof house or hut he was in. He was laying there motionless, and I said to Jaya, uh, what's going on here? And he said, well, this man is very, very sick, and he's going to die soon. I said, okay, well, can we pray for him? Yeah, let's go over. So I still remember going and putting my hand on his forehead, and it was like putting your hand on a stove. No medicine for him, no medical care available. He's going to die. So I went back, my daughter who's 11 or 12 with me at the time, and I, I just can't sleep. I just keep thinking about this man, and he doesn't have medicine. And I did one of the dumbest things I've done in my life, which is saying a lot, because I've done a lot of dumb things. But I had some antibiotics with me. And so I, I walked down the road early in the morning when the sun was just coming up, snuck out of where we were staying to go down there with some water and a medicine. I'm going to give the guy antibiotics. And and they, they stopped me, our host stopped me before I got there and said, no, you can't do that. And the reason is because he's probably going to die anyhow and they're going to say you poisoned him and it's just dangerous, you can't do that. So I, was, I felt so helpless. And about a month later, I got word that he had passed away. So Kensington has built a hospital in India and you heard during COVID that we filled it up with people who needed ventilators, they needed medicine. We did this. We did it. Why did we do it? 
Because we're living loved. And we're living loving. That's why. So when we hold this up in front of you every week and approaching the end of the year, if you have resources, would you consider investing in the work that God has called us to do as a church that's both in our community, it's in Pontiac, it's in, it's in Mount Clemens, it's all around us, but it's in India and Nepal and Afghanistan and Kenya and all over the world. This is an extraordinary thing, so we're inviting you to participate with us. Um, you will find near the back of the book um, a list of examples of what your money investment of this much will do this. And again, I don't want this to sound like a sales pitch. I just invite you to be in the journey with us for the amazing things. I think that 10 years from now, this is going to be twice as thick because we're not done yet. There's more need. There's more need in our communities and more need in our world. And our prayer, and my prayer this morning, thinking especially about this message, God, would you just give us the ability to see your face in Jesus so that, first of all, we feel whole inside, that we don't feel shame. We're not hiding in the shadows. We're not afraid of God. He's not an angry God. He's not a God who came to condemn. He came to do just the opposite, to set us free, to love us. And out of that would be an outpouring of our lives as we love the way we are loved by God. It's transformational. And when you do things like Coleman did or whatever God calls you to do, um, the love of God just grows in us more and more because we feel the delight that he feels when he sees love expressed in this way. So let me just pray for us. And we're going to have a time of, of kind of reflection through worship at the end. Let the words of these, this song soak over you. No one will love you like God loves you. And so, God, that's what we ask for in this moment. Would you reveal yourself to us, not just in our thoughts and our minds and ideas and verses, but could we experience you today, to experience how much we are loved by you, to see clearly, Jesus, your face. In your name, amen.
I thought I knew what love was. I thought I knew what love was. It's so much better. It's better. I thought I knew what love was. I thought I knew what love was. I thought I knew what love was. But it's better. It's better. I thought I knew what love was. There's, a, there's not a lot more to say, but I'm going to say it anyhow. God loves you. Amen. Christmas tells us how deeply he loves you, each of us. He loves us. Maybe from the song, there are two things in our mind, in our imagination we could do this week. One is we can lean back and know that there are loving arms that will embrace us. There are no other arms of God. This is God. It's who he is. And then I love the thought of breathing because we breathe all the time. We're not even aware of it. What if we took some time in our breasts to say, say, God, you love me. 
I'm breathing in your love. Because he is the air that we breathe. He's the air that we need. His love is. And we all need it today. We all need it. So I hope you come back um, this week for one of our five Christmas services. Uh, As Aaron said up front, we just need you to go online to reserve your space to make sure there's a space for you. The tickets are free. And then don't forget on your way out, take one of those invites. And um, I heard a story this week of one of our pastors who was having lunch with Adam, uh, handed one to the server at their table, and she was so excited. And she said, can my kids come? See, it's that easy to ask. So just think of someone this week, or maybe don't even think of someone, just have one with you and see who God might bring here this week to meet the God who is love, God is love. So we're going to end our service as we have during this Advent series, so if you would please stand. Um, There is prayer down front. If you'd like afterwards, some members of our prayer team would be down here to either answer questions about what you heard today or to pray with you. And then we're going to sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And then when we're done with the song, you are dismissed uh, to go out into your day. Let's go out and live love this week, okay? God bless. You've been listening to the Kensington Church Podcast. If you've enjoyed this recording, check back weekly for new content. You can find Kensington on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and of course, at kensingtonchurch.org.